Guys, I am so excited and thankful to be here this morning. Um, I would like to start off our time praying because I believe that the Holy Spirit is here, amen, and that he actually wants to use his word and us being together as a way to transform our lives. So I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and do that. Are we cool with that? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we are thankful for who you are. I ask now that you would reveal your presence to us in the way that you speak, that the the distractions in our minds and the things that want to keep us from being transformed, um, that you would silence them, that you would draw us close to you this morning as we learn about you and your word. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So I want to start our time off this morning with a couple of questions. Okay. Question number one, and don't raise your hand. This is rhetorical. Um, Have you or do you ever feel trapped by your sin? Do you ever feel like you can't escape the harmful things that you do and the terrible things that you think? Do you ever feel trapped by your sin? Question number two, do you feel like those things create distance between you and God and create distance between you and other people? Yeah? I would like to suggest that we all feel this way from time to time, that we all have sins that discourage us and that push us away from other people and feel like it pushes us away from our Heavenly Father who loves us. I think we all kind of go through that. I would also like to suggest that receiving the power of Jesus and being reminded of his unending love is the way in which we push back against these things. That's the way we fend off the darkness. So, we're going to read a passage in Mark. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark. We're going to go to chapter 5, if you have them. If not, I promise I will read it, and I will not lead you astray. Um, We're going to pick up right where Hayden left off last week. He was in Mark chapter 4. Jesus has just silenced the raging seas with his words, right? Remarkable. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being on that boat, how terrifying that would be? I would be more terrified of Jesus silencing the storm than I would be of the storm, right? That makes the infinity gauntlet look like child's play. That's crazy. He just speaks and everything was subdued. So they are crossing the Sea of Galilee into a place that no Jew would ever want to go. Remember, when you read the Bible, you have to read it like a Jew. That sounds a little racist. Um, <laughs> he reads like such a Jew. No, really. You have to put your mind... In the place of an ancient Jew, you have to read it as though you are a part of this ancient culture. See, a Jewish person was defined... This is stabbing me in the back. I'm going to push this back. All right. A Jewish person back then was defined by his or her culture. That stuff was really important. And they did a lot of things very differently because they wanted to be set apart for God. And now they were venturing into a part of the world where these people did everything basically opposite of the Jews. They did everything differently. It was also a region that was in political chaos. There was crime rampant and violence, and the disciples were probably not excited to go to this place. It was a scary place. So with that in mind, let's read the passage. Now, I'm going to read this full passage here about, about, about Jesus and the, and the demon-possessed man. I'm going to read the full thing. Now, it's a long passage. What I want you to do is I want you to try your best. Every time you feel distracted, acknowledge you're distracted, and then come back to the text. We're going to read this through. I think sometimes we think that we need a preacher or a teacher for the word of God to be powerful in our lives, but sometimes just reading it and letting it speak to us by itself, that can be powerful enough. So I'm going to give the Holy Spirit space to do that right now, all right? So let's imagine ourselves in this story, okay? Chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of G. They went across the region 
to the region of G. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding at a nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. This little piggy went to market. This little piggy was drowned by demons. It's just brutal. Okay. I digress. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and all the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw a man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has, had mer- has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Wow. Okay, the beginning of this story reads kind of like a horror film, doesn't it? I am legion, for we are many. What the heck, Jesus? I thought reading the Bible would make me feel better, but now I'm, like, afraid of the dark and, and pigs. <laughs> actually, a side note here, I actually refuse to watch horror movies to this day. I don't do it because of how much they mess me up, and I actually don't think that any of us should watch horror movies because they're terrible. They just instill fear. When I was 13 years old, I watched The Ring, which I know... The Ring is not that scary in comparison to a lot of horror films out there. But I was 13, and I had never seen one before, so shut up. I was scared. And I remember I was afraid to even go into my house, right? Like, I wouldn't even walk into my bedroom to go to sleep. Like, I would start down the hallway and get a running start, and I would jump onto my bed because I wasn't going to let no demon girl grab my ankles when I was pulling back the sheets. You know what I'm saying? So, anyway. What was I saying? Okay, the point of that is that you can actually imagine how terrifying this scene was, right? And notice how, like the last story in Mark 4, the people were afraid of the thing, but they were more afraid after Jesus fixed the thing, right? The disciples were more afraid of Jesus calming the storm than the actual storm. And the people were more afraid of the fact that Jesus could control these demons than actually being afraid of the demons themselves. The point of this is that God is not a joke. God is a force, And Jesus had that power within himself, but yet he was the most meek and mild person on the earth. Meek means power under control. He was not weak. He was meek. He was powerful. He was strong, but he controlled it, right? He was humble. All right, so this man lived in a graveyard. In fact, it says that he lived in the tombs, which is nasty, because this is where they would actually put decaying dead bodies. 
And he obviously didn't stay there because the people of the town felt the need to chain, chain him up. So he was obviously going into the town and wreaking havoc and causing all kinds of problems. He, he was so strong that he broke iron chains that people put on him. Nobody could overpower him who tried to restrain him. He spent his time cutting himself with sharp, sharp rocks. And to top it off, he did it all completely naked. Scary. <laughs> a very different kind of scary than the storm, right? Still scary, different kind of scary. Okay, so here's a couple th- things to keep in mind as we unpack this passage, okay? There are often two layers to Jesus' miracles when you read the Gospels. There's what's literally happening right then in real time, and then there's what that thing represents, okay? There's what's literally happening in that moment, and then there's what that miracle, what that thing actually represents in the bigger story. This is a powerful storytelling tool, right? Storytelling tool. It's a hard phrase to say. Jewish tradition thrived and depended upon the art of story. That's what, that's what the Jewish tradition was built off of. I'll give you a few examples. Anybody into Stranger Things like the show, Stranger Things? All right, we've got, got a few of you. Okay, so the character Eleven, we can throw that picture up. She was kidnapped by the government, and she was forced to become a weapon endowed with superhuman abilities, right? And every time she uses those powers, her nose, her nose bleeds, and she becomes physically weakened, right? Her bleeding and her weakness represent what happens to her soul every time she feels she has to be the weapon she was forced to become, Right? Her body starts to die a little more each time she uses her powers. And in the same way, she loses a little bit of her soul, of her innocence, whenever she's forced to kill. What's literally happening and what it represents, right? Star Wars fans? Star Wars? Everybody seen Revenge of the Sith, episode three, right? Okay, so I know some of us don't like the prequels. Get over it. Now, in this movie, when Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi are, are dueling on the lava planet of Mustafar, right? I promise I'm going somewhere with this. (laughs) When they're dueling on the lava planet of Musafar, the mining station around them is falling apart into the lava, right? It's melting all around them. This represents how everything that they've ever known to be true about each other, the foundations of their friendship and brotherhood, they're crumbling beneath them as they fight, right? What's actually happening, happening, what it represents. Okay, how about Disney fans? Tangled? Tangled? Okay. My wife and I were just dating when we saw that movie for the first time. It was super cute. Oh, by the way, my wife's right here in the front row. Can you say hi to my wife? She's sweet. Okay. All right, so entangled, when Finn is dying, spoiler alert, and Rapunzel begs her evil stepmother not to let her heal, to, to let her heal him with her magic hair. In exchange, Rapunzel agreed she would be her slave forever. But Finn, in his final breath, chose to cut away her magic hair so that the stepmother couldn't use it to stay young anymore right? Him cutting away her hair represented an act of selflessness to redeem his mostly selfish life, cutting away a lifetime of lies and manipulation that Rapunzel had experienced. His love for her was about her, not her magic hair. What actually happened, what it represents. One more example, Moana. Any Moana fans out there? Okay, in this story, when Maui, when Maui forgets how to shapeshift, right? And he can't figure out how to become like one thing. He gets stuck with a shark head. This was a metaphor for how Maui didn't know who he was anymore. He used to believe that he was the hero of humans, but now he wasn't so sure. So, so like his body, his confidence was divided, right? What actually happened, what it represents. Are we tracking? Are we getting it? Okay. So I could go on and on. Good storytellers know how to take literal things that happen and use them to tell a broader story. So Mark does this with the events of Jesus' life. I would go as far as to say that the Holy Spirit uses Mark to do this with the events of Jesus' life. So last week, 
Hayden walked you through the events leading up to the story, and we see the use of metaphor. As Jesus exercised his authority over the sea, he said what? Peace, be still, right? An ancient Jew would read, remember we have to read scripture like a Jew, they would, they would, they would see the metaphor of the stormy seas as, as a representation of the chaos of the world. That's what the sea meant to them. It was dangerous, right? The nations fighting and threatening each other throughout the world. So Jesus showed the disciples that he not only had the ability to command the natural world, but he had authority over the governments. He had authority over all of the nations and all of the kingdoms because he was the true king of humankind, right? So now we come to this next chapter in Mark, and Jesus is going to again demonstrate his power over the chaos of the world, but he's going to do it by not just telling the waves to be still, He's going to face down evil itself. Because a Jewish person would understand that everything bad that happens in the world is at its core caused by the evil one, the serpent, the enemy, Satan. In the Aramaic, we have the word satanas, which means the accuser or one who opposes, right? So Jesus goes across the sea, which is a metaphor for the chaos and brokenness of the world, and he goes to face down the demonic, which is the cause of all the chaos and brokenness in the world. Do you see how these stories are interconnected? Right? They're really important to put together. Okay, so we come upon the demon-possessed man who has super strength, and he's living in a graveyard, and he's cutting himself with sharp rocks. Now, this is a problem, obviously, for a lot of reasons, but especially for Jewish people, this represented a problem because um, he didn't have the ability to be close to God's presence in the temple. Right? In order to, to come to the temple back then, Jews had a set of standards that needed to be met so that one, could, so that one wouldn't be unclean before God. One of the big ones was that you couldn't touch a dead body within a certain amount of time before going to the temple. Um, and, and because dead bodies represented the consequence of sin, and the temple was meant to represent heaven and Eden. Death wasn't there. So if you touched a dead body, you weren't supposed to bring that into the temple. Also, it was a pagan practice to cut oneself in the worship of pagan gods. Lots of pagan cultures did this. And so the demons were forcing him to participate in pagan worship. That's kind of scary, right? So, so suffice it to say, this guy was the polar opposite of what it meant for the Jews to be called clean or pure. He was the opposite of that. So now we come to the first words uttered by Jesus in this passage. The first words. Remember, this is a red letter series. We're talking about Jesus' words. The first one. Come out of this man, you impure spirit. The first words that Jesus utters in this story, come out of this man, you impure spirit. This line shows Jesus' authority over evil, not just brokenness and chaos, but evil itself. These demons were terrified by Jesus. They knew who he was before he even walked up to them, right? They knew what was up. They didn't try to put up much of a fight, and they started begging almost immediately. See, here's why this is important. The Jewish people had gotten to a place where they, especially the Pharisees, would ostracize and condemn people who were deemed unclean. They would treat them like pariahs, like outcasts, like they were less important than the rest of the people in the culture. They were condescending towards them. They were kind of like bullies, honestly. Now, Jesus was constantly trying to be the reverse of this. Jesus sought out the unclean. He sought out the impure. He sought out the sinful. See, a Pharisee at this time operated under the assumption that, that um, he didn't want to be contaminated by the unclean. He didn't want to be made unclean by other people. But Jesus, see, Jesus brought himself pure, blameless, spotless to the unclean and made them whole, right? The impure didn't make Jesus unclean. He made everyone else clean. Big difference there. 
So Jesus went out into the land of impurity, the land of uncleanliness, to set this demon-possessed man free. And sometimes, guys, we are so embarrassed and ashamed of our sin being seen by a perfect God, by righteous church people, that we forget what happens when we encounter a perfect yet forgiving and merciful Jesus. See, Jesus has the final word to deem you worthy of his love and attention. And despite the sin in your life, he does so. Now, because Jesus' authority over evil has deemed you clean, forgiven, despite whatever you've done, whatever lies you believe about yourself. So let's be honest, guys. There, there's nothing really scarier than our own sin, is there? There really isn't. Because there are things in the world that human beings can defeat. You know, scary things with enough training, with enough power, with enough equipment. We can defeat a lot of stuff. We can climb huge mountains. We can conquer whole countries. We can athletically compete. We can learn how to fight. But honestly, apart from the power of Jesus, we are completely powerless to defeat our own sin. That's the one thing that human beings will never really learn how to defeat on their own. So that's scary. I don't actually have power to defeat my own sin. Like this guy in the tombs, we are helpless against the powers of the enemy. But in Jesus, the darkness trembles. And the demons are sent running. They are afraid of Jesus. They aren't afraid of you and me. They're not. But because of who Jesus is, evil has to run away. So the literal thing. Jesus tells an impure spirit to come out. What it represents. Jesus has authority over evil, and he makes the unclean clean through his forgiveness. All right, second phrase Jesus utters. What is your name? What is your name? This line strikes me. I think this line and this part of the story demonstrates how Jesus actually deeply cares for the individual. See, it seems to be implied that Jesus is asking the name of the demon, and, and maybe he is as well. But see, it was believed back then that if somebody knew the name of a spirit, that they could control that spirit. That was the superstition back then. But notice how the demons knew Jesus' name, and they didn't have any power over Jesus. They immediately began to beg. See, the demons know who God is, and they shudder. Jesus asked the name of the demons, um, but I don't think he was very concerned about knowing their names because he had authority over them, over every single one, without having to know their individual names. So I wonder if Jesus wasn't asking for the name of the demon, but he was asking for the name of the man. You see, demons beg Jesus to send them into the herd of pigs. These were likely not wild pigs, just so you know. They're not just like 2,000 pigs hanging out, um, having fun. They were likely owned by a farmer. They were probably a herd uh, of livestock. These 2,000 pigs will be worth a lot of money, like a lot of money. This would have likely had a huge impact on the economy of that world at that time. Huge impact by 2,000 of those assets just being gone, being killed. But Jesus, he didn't seem to be very concerned with that, did he? He allowed the demons to kill this wealth of livestock as long as this one man was set free. He didn't care about the names of the demons. He cared about this man. See, I think this shows that Jesus really does leave the 99 to find the one who's gone astray. This is Jesus' character. Jesus was always being asked to create policies and really controversial issues surrounding the law, sin, Sabbath, taxes, right? We see this in the New Testament. The Pharisees are always trying to trip him up about technicalities, trying to create policies, trying to pass laws. But do you remember the story of the adulterous woman? Okay, 
a woman is caught in adultery. She's caught having sex with somebody she's not married to. So the Pharisees bring her before Jesus and they throw her at Jesus's feet. And they tried to trick him. They said, okay, Jesus, the law of Moses said we should stone this woman. So what's it going to be? Are we going to let her live and break the law? Or are you going to obey the law and let us kill her? Now notice what Jesus does here. Jesus didn't even address them. Jesus wasn't concerned about creating a policy. He bent over and he wrote in the dirt. And to this day, scholars don't know what he wrote. They don't have any idea. You know why? I think Jesus was writing a message to this woman that was only meant for her. It wasn't meant for the Pharisees. See, they were trying to draw Jesus' attention to the policies and the laws and the technicalities, but Jesus was concerned about the soul of this woman. Here's why I bring this up, guys. We live in a day and age where the loudest voices in our culture are trying to get us to choose sides about policies and laws all the time. We kind of live in this culture where we think we can solve every problem in the world by making sure the right laws are passed or making sure the right person becomes president. Look, I think politics are important. I really do. And I think your vote matters. When you're able to vote, it's important that you do so with wisdom and with responsibility. But honestly, laws and policies can't be where we put our hope. They can't. As you guys grow up and become voting adults, I pray that you aren't as concerned with making policies for people living a thousand miles away as you are with loving the people that are right in front of you. See, when a person has a question about their sexuality or their gender, it's so controversial, isn't it? Immediately, it becomes about fighting. It becomes about laws. It becomes about the, the progress in our nation. We get so caught up in making policies about these people, whether it be to protect them or condemn them, that we forget how to actually see the person and take care of them right in front of us, right there. We forget how to have compassion on their soul as they're asking for it right in front of us. So see the human right in front of you before you see the policy. You guys are going to be adults really soon, and it's going to matter how you decide to run this country. It's going to matter. You can't put your hope in the government. It won't save you. No matter who becomes president, it can't. So don't, don't let your worldview become about what's left and right, about what's red or blue, about what's Republican or Democrat. Remember that in the kingdom of God, the real battle is not between liberals and conservatives. It's about good and evil. So, the literal thing. Jesus asks this man's name. What it represents, he knows who the enemy is, has authority over him, and he knows who you are. Okay. So when Jesus set this man free from demon possession, he made him whole. He made him clean. He was no longer living among the dead, cutting himself with rocks. He was made new. He was restored to be more human. It's crazy. He was strong enough to break iron chains off of his body. But the only thing that could set him free from himself was the love of Jesus. So, okay. So some time had passed at this point. And word began to spread about Jesus setting free this demon-possessed man. And when the people in the town came to see the news, they found him fully clothed in a right state of mind hanging out with Jesus. He wasn't able to come to the presence of God in the temple, but Jesus brought the presence of God himself to this man where he was. Jesus wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. And guys, we have to be willing to do this for other people. We do. Inviting people to church is a good thing, but it's not enough. It's not enough. We have to be willing to meet people where they're at and bring truth and love to them. 
And it's not about trying to change them. Jesus will do that. It's not about judging them. It's about getting people to see that when we're in sin, we aren't truly ourselves. We're not. Life in Jesus ultimately becomes about allowing Jesus to form me into who I was meant to be. That's what following Jesus is. We often feel intimidated about, by this, and we think, well, how can I possibly do for people what Jesus did for this man? Well, the key to that is in the next final words that Jesus says in this story. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's the key. See, you don't have to go out there judging and condemning. You don't have to do that as Christians. Your best ability to change a person's life is to talk about how Jesus has changed yours. That's your best way to do that. And you're right. Being a light in a dark place can be really difficult if you haven't, if you haven't fully received the light of Jesus in your own life yet. See, the truth is, when you say yes to Jesus, he has the power to change everything. But you have to be willing to let him ruin your life. It's true, man. Following Jesus will ruin your life. <laughs> the one that you have set up, the one that you're dreaming about, all the expectations and stuff that you want, he's going to break all of that. But in return, he gives you the life that you were truly meant to have. A life where you are fully reconciled to him and fully reconciled to the people around you. That's what life in Jesus is. So, when you say yes to Jesus, it should transform you and set you apart from the evil you see around you. See, you should be able to say this. No, I don't send nude pictures of myself to people because I know that God created my body to be sexy for one person whom I will choose to spend the rest of my life with. And until that day comes, my body's on lockdown. Thank you, Jesus. Right? And yeah, I don't ask people to send me nudes because I understand that love has to be coupled with respect of the highest order. Right? Yeah, I resist the urge to watch pornography because I know that it is a tool of evil that's trying to poison my soul, right? No, I don't cheat on my exams and my tests because I know that my integrity and my character means more in the long run than a grade in a class. No, I don't spread rumors about people and soil their reputations because I know that my tongue, when untamed, actually has more, powerful, more power to destroy than a rifle. No, I don't bully people and condemn them to make myself feel, appear powerful because I know... Oh did something to my notes here. There we go. <laughs> no, I don't bully people and, and, and allow myself to appear more powerful to prove myself because I know that the most powerful being in the universe allowed himself to be hurt and killed by human beings because he had nothing to prove by winning a fight, but proved everything by winning the war without firing a single shot. And no, I don't take pride or vanity in my accomplishments or my image because I know that everything I have that's good, I have because of the mercy and grace of God. And no, I don't equate my value to the number of likes on my selfie because I know that I am defined not by the broken opinions of other people, but by the love of the God that created me, that created the universe. And no, I don't scream at my parents even when they behave like children because I know that the word of God <laughs> says that I can disagree with them and still honor and respect them. And no, I don't shoplift and steal stuff because I know that Jesus wants me to store up treasures of a different kind. And no, I don't look like the rest of the world because I have been defined by death and life in Jesus. And when I said yes to Jesus, he turned my life upside down. 
And it's because of his mercy, when I was powerless to set myself free, that he set me free by his word. Now listen, please do not hear me the wrong way. I am not saying that you have to do all of those things to be a good Christian. And that not doing those things makes you a bad Christian. Not what I'm saying. We do not live a faith that is defined by us earning chips, by earning God points. See, Jesus offers his love freely. And if we truly accept his love and forgiveness, we will be compelled to live a life that looks more like his. So if you are doing a bunch of the bad things that I just listed and thinking, man, I must be a really bad Christian. No, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. If you are doing all these harmful and unhealthy things, maybe you need to ask yourself if you've truly accepted the love and forgiveness of God. Have you truly accepted? Maybe if you are doing these things, you need to be reminded that the love of God sets you free. You are acting like you have chains around your hands and your feet because you don't really believe that anyone has the power to give you freedom. But guys, you don't have to fight for the affection of Jesus. The sooner you realize that, the sooner you will be free to share what Jesus has done for you to everyone else. See, we don't live our lives differently in order for us to earn the love of Jesus. That's what the Pharisees do. The love of Jesus compels us to live our lives differently. Last year, I had this dream right before high school camp, around this time. It was the day before high school camp. I had this dream that I was in my home and two men broke into my house and they were going to try to kill me, my wife, and my child. And I couldn't let that happen, right? So I went into my closet and I grabbed a sword. Yes, I keep swords in my closet. No, it's not a joke. (laughs) I grabbed a sword and I began to attack these guys with everything that I had. Every last ounce of strength, I, I went at it. But my swords started breaking on their skin like they were made of vibranium or something. It wasn't working. And I was scared because all of the stuff that I had went through to prepare for that moment, nothing I could do was enough to stop these guys. And then I woke up. And when I woke up, I don't say that I hear God say things literally very often, but this was one of those moments where I felt these words very clearly. You cannot win this fight by your own strength. I felt those words as I woke up and it was like, oh, The reason I tell you that is because, guys, you can't win this fight on your own strength. The evil one is a hungry lion who's seeking to devour you. And I promise you, you cannot win on your own. We need to trust in Jesus because he has already won the battle. When Jesus is a part of the equation, the demons beg to be set free. But without Jesus, evil controls everything that we do. So I'll ask again, do you ever feel trapped by your sin? Do you feel that sin separates you from God and from others? Because you see, this man was trapped by evil in his life. His demonic possession pushed him into isolation, away from God, away from people. But see, Jesus didn't allow him to stay that way. Jesus closed the gap between him and God and him and, and, and others. And he restored his state of mind so that he could rejoin his community but not as the man he was before, as the man God intended him to be. He was made new. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up at this moment. We're going to sing a song in response. Here's something really important, guys. 
you need to stop fighting this fight on your own. And you need to receive the presence of God offered through Jesus and allow him to change everything. Now, here's the thing. Jesus has the absolute power to change everything in your life, but you have to be willing to give him access to everything in your life. And that can be scary. To come into the light and let secrets and things come out can be really scary. But that is why Jesus has given us the community of the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters in Jesus, to be with us, to help us do it. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to ask the youth leaders who are here to stand in the back of the room, kind of in a semicircle across the back. We're going to sing this song. If there's something that is stirring in you right now, why don't we stand together and stand? Now I want everyone to close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. If there is something that is stirring in you right now, if you feel trapped by your sin, if you feel like the evil things in your life have been keeping you away from God, putting distance between you, and keeping you away from other people, and you want to be set free, I want you to feel free to go to the back, to find somebody that you trust, Maybe it's easier to find somebody you don't know. And I want you to tell them what it is. This thing has been keeping me from other people. It's been keeping me from wanting to be close to God. And I want to be done with it. Talk to that person. Tell them what it is. And then they're going to pray for you. And they're just going to ask for the Holy Spirit to have his way in your life. So let's pray. Jesus, we know that you and, lo- you, will- you, and you alone have the power to set us free. You have authority over evil and darkness, but God, we want to submit to you and allow you to set us free. We want to give you that space in our life for you to move. We want to become clean and pure because of your love, because we know that you have the final say. So Jesus, as we sing now, as we worship, as we connect to your Holy Spirit, I ask that every single person in this room would feel your love. Not just think it, not just know it, but they they would feel that the Heavenly Father, the God who created the universe, the Son who died, and the Spirit who is with them loves them more than anybody could ever imagine. We ask for your freedom in Jesus' name.